Amen. Uh, before I have you rise and, uh, and uh, hear the reading of God's Word, I, I just want to do something that I haven't done overly well over my course of my seven years, and that's give credit to the people that go into helping guys like me present sermons like this. And so as I walk through James, we, I, have leaned heavily on guys like Dr. Douglas Moo, Dr. Craig Blomberg, Paul Tripp, Tim Keller, Dan Doriani, and many others. And it's just right and good to give credit where credit is due for allowing those men to speak into um, many pastors' hearts and lives and into your lives as well. But most importantly, we often forget about the third member of the Trinity in that the Holy Spirit does a lot of the work. The Holy Spirit takes words from guys like me and carries them to people like you. And I have used this illustration in the past, and I'm not so sure how it all works, but I can tell you many times I have walked down these steps or similar steps and just felt like I have just preached the most awful sermon that's ever been preached in the history of the world. And I will have many of you then come up to me and say, thank you, Ryan, that was very meaningful and beneficial, and I wonder to myself, where is the disconnect? And I've also had the opposite true where I've thought, hey, everyone should just jump up and run out of here totally on fire for the Lord. And people have said, well, that was a dud. So all that to say, the Holy Spirit carries words in such a way that I oftentimes am amazed by. And so my prayer this morning, and as I have every single Sunday I've been with you, is I pray that the Holy Spirit would carry my words to you. Because I'm not quite sure how the Holy Spirit's going to take these words and work them into your lives, into your hearts, to edify you, to grow you, to challenge you, to encourage you, to exhort you. So my prayer is this morning that as I stand up here before you yet again, that you hear the Holy Spirit through me and through others that have influenced me over the course of many years. So if you're able... Please rise as we read the last two verses of the book of James, verses 19 and 20 from chapter 5 of God's Word. Hear the reading of God's Word. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So far the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, uphold your promise that where two or more are gathered in your name, you would be present. So Holy Spirit, not only be present, be active in our lives. Carry my words to these dear people gathered here in this room, online, today, tomorrow, or even perhaps years from now, that you would grow and edify, sanctify through what you do and how you do it. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus who lives forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, indeed, we've come to the end of James, and I hope that you have found it challenging, encouraging, um, and even perhaps even heard an exhortation or two, because I know that that is what I have felt as we've walked through these chapters and verses over the course of the past few weeks and months. Um, but what we have seen in James is, is a new paradigm, right? It's, it's a new way of looking at life. And James has painted a really wonderful picture for us. And it's a picture that says our lives shouldn't be and can't be driven by my wants 
my desires, my feelings, or even perhaps our needs. But rather driven by the gospel of grace and by what Jesus has done in our lives. And he concludes this in a really interesting kind of way. So I want you to, once again, do a little exercise with me and play along for just a second. If, if, if it was up to you to write the last two verses in James, how would you do it? If it was me, I'd probably be a bit more like Paul and give you just, I would hope, a warm, generous, gracious benediction, something like, grace be with you. Grace and peace, go on your way and serve the Lord. But that's not what James does, is it? He continues on with exactly what he's always done. So I'm going to propose to you this morning, there probably, most likely, and obviously is not a better way for James to conclude than just the way James has concluded his letter to this group of believers who has been dispersed across the land. So look at it again with me, if you could, in verse 20, in 19 and 20. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You may be saying to yourself, what does that have to do with the entirety of the book of James? Why does he end it this way? And I want to say to you, this is, again, exactly the way that it should be concluded. What James has talked about from beginning to end of this letter is exactly what he's talking about in these last two verses. In a sense, is what he's saying, as long as there's sin in the world, and we know there is, we know there's sin in our lives, in the lives of those around us, then we have to be prepared to meet that sin and, and have relationships with sinful, broken people just like ourselves people that wander, people that go away, go astray. And so I wonder, as we read these verses about wandering people, about wandering from the truth, the thing that stuck in my mind over and over again as I read these two verses was this stanza. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Isn't this the theme and the anthem that rings in our brains as we read these few verses here? So James has talked to us a lot about this wandering throughout this book. He's talked about how we wander in in doubt in moments of trial. How in subtle ways, by the desires of our own heart, we wander into temptation. How we wander away from graciousness into all forms of ungodly anger. How we wander from humble love into prejudice. How we wander into a separation from what we say we believe to what we and how we actually live. How we wander from dependency to God into self-sovereignty. How we wander away from unity and peace into conflict with one another. How we wander from thankfulness into unthankful grumbling. And how easily we wander into unbiblical and unhelpful talk. How we wander even though we say we believe in God 
into desperate and prayerless living. As they say, did you see what I did there? I just summarized the book of James. You see, James is saying to us in conclusion of these last two verses, we all wander. And I've just spent five chapters telling you how you all wander and how I wander and all of us wander. Because this is the way our hearts go. This is the way our lives go. But you know what? We never just wander in our brains, do we? We never just wander in our hearts or in our emotions. You see, because oftentimes the way our thoughts go is the way our hearts go is the way our lives go. We're wandering at all times. And now wandering becomes a way of life. But the interesting thing here about wandering is it never just happens overnight, or usually doesn't just happen overnight. It's usually not done in some big dramatic moment, is it? One of the things I think is wrong with how we interpret these last two verses is that we fully expect and and read into a situation and say, well, that person who's obviously wandered away and they have once said they believed in God and, and now they don't and their life actually is 180 degrees opposite from the way that the Lord would have them live. That's a dramatic event and we say, well, these verses are for that type of person. James is saying, no, he's saying it's for anyone, anyone who wanders. But how we wander starts out in just little bits and pieces. It starts out with just simple things of doubt. It starts out with a little lie about life, about the Bible, about who God is, about who we are, about who our neighbors are. It starts out subtle. It starts with self-serving little arguments of justification. And then it grows. And it grows a little bit more. And it grows a little bit more. And until amazingly, that person turns their back on the Lord. It doesn't start out dramatically. It doesn't start out with fanfare. It doesn't start out with all kinds of drama. It starts out with a little lie. It starts with subtle little wanderings away over and over again. And so let's just play that out for a second. Let's not pretend that we're immune from that kind of subtle wandering. There are people in this room who've wandered away from the truth in our marriages. We're not living out the one flesh that God has brought us together. We wander to temptations. We wander to computer screens. We wander to lust. We wander to other people, other spouses, other things that we think will make us happy and more fulfilled. We're living in some type of other than biblical marriage. And we say, well, it's not that big of a deal if I just dabble in a flirtation or dabble in the computer screen. But it grows and it grows and it grows. Some of you have wandered in your relationship with the Lord God Almighty. You've lost your fervor, your passion. You've lost the sense in which grace has gripped you for who you are and what you are. 
yeah, you still attend church. You come here each and every week. But you're not living as God would have you live. You live as the way you want to live. And we justify it with subtle little lies to ourselves. Well, I can feel this way because I've been hurt. I can live this way because this is what makes me feel better. And the way I want to live. We've wandered in our thoughts. And now we give our thoughts over to our actions. To places that we thought we would never go. Some of you have wandered into envy and jealousy. We look at social media and we say, oh man, that person's life is so much better than mine. I wish I had a life like that. And then it's just this little subtle thing that begins to say, well, my life's not that good, not that perfect, so God must not love me the way that he loves him or her or them on Facebook. God's not faithful to me. God's not being generous to me. He's being harder on me than anyone else. And we get jealous and we get envious and we get hurt and we get bitter and it's just little lie after little lie after little lie. And so we question God himself. Some of us have wandered into materialism. Some of us have wandered into power and control that I deserve this money. I deserve this power. I deserve this control. And one little lie after another little lie. And it grows and it grows. You see, what James is saying is that if anyone wanders, well, anyone is not someone else. Anyone is you and me. If we look at our own hearts and we look at our own lives, it doesn't take long to see and to understand just how and where we wander in subtle ways that turn into bigger ways, that turn into bigger ways, that turn into bigger ways. You see, then this passage really is a mirror that's held up to our hearts and to our lives. And to say, how is it that I wander from God's goodness and His faithfulness into how I live my life? And so I want to ask that very question of you this morning. To look and to think and to peer into the depths of who you are. Where have you wandered? Where are you wandering? And then to ask yourself, why? How have I lied to myself? How have I justified myself? And how have I forgotten God's goodness and graciousness and love and compassion and mercy to me? My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So right smack in the middle of these verses and at the end of the book, there's a warning. There's a warning to everyone in this room. Everyone wanders. And then there's a call. There's a warning and there's a call to everyone in this room. And the call is not to just sit back and cast more judgment and more critique and more righteousness. But there's a call to action. 
A call to, to step in, to, to come to the rescue. Of who? Of your brothers and sisters. It's a call to have loving and restorative relationships within the church, within your family, marriages, parents, and children. It's an amazing thing that bringing back a person is not assigned to just to guys like me or to elders, but it's assigned to everybody. It's not just on Ryan or some other pastor, but it's on each and every one of us to restore relationships. This mission, this rescue mission, this mission of restoration is a call to every person in the church of Jesus Christ. And that means to the church at Redeemer Arlington. So look around. You, I, and we are the rescuers of each other. You see, Redeemer Arlington is to be a place not where ministry is found or where relationships are found or that we try to seek them out, but rather Redeemer Arlington Church and every other church is to be a place where ministry happens and relationships exist in real and meaningful ways. Not just, hey, I go to church with these people or I know them or I might go to a Bible study with them, but how is it that we are in one another's lives? How is it that we care for one another? How is it that we love one another? How is it that we are with one another? And how is it that we help, exhort, counsel, care, all of these things? You see, this is the paradigm that James has painted for us. This is the picture that James has spent a lot of ink on for the last five chapters. I don't live my life just for me. And neither do you. We live our lives for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we live our lives for one another. And so then we must take the responsibility as brothers and sisters, Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ for the well-being of one another. Not simply and only just to attend church on a Sunday morning, but to care and love. Not to, not to cast judgment and critique and self-righteousness, but to, to learn and to love and to live with one another. To be a part of this special community called the body of Christ. This is what James is telling us for five chapters. And this is what this looks like. You see, now we're all part of this rescue mission. We're all part of this restoration. I am an instrument. I am a tool the Lord God uses, and so are you, to help restore, sanctify the person to your left, the person to the right, in front and behind you. As a member of the body of Christ, this is the way we must live our lives because this is the command that Paul, excuse me, that James gives us. Here's the bottom line. We can't do this with people that we don't know. We can't be in real community with people if we don't know the people who we're in community with. We can't ask good questions. We can't love well. We can't live well if we don't know one another. And so it's a call to community. It's a call to, to relationships. It's a call to being with one another, living with one another, learning with one another, worshiping with one another. This is the call that James is giving to us here and now. 
And that's how restoration takes place. That's how rescue takes place. We must learn to break through the casual nature of life. We must learn to break through the, the criticism and the, and the judgment and the, and the self-righteousness of, of life that we all do. And seek to restore. Seek to live and to love and to learn and to worship with one another. Now, I'm not saying that tomorrow morning you call someone out or call someone up for coffee and pour out all of the dirt or ask them to pour out all the dirt. That may be a bit inappropriate, at least for tomorrow morning. It's, it's a dangerous thing and it's a scary thing to enter into relationships. But it's what the Lord God is telling us to do because that's what he did for us. It was a dangerous and scary thing for the Lord Jesus to take on flesh. It was a dangerous and scary thing for the Lord Jesus to be hung on a tree. It was a dangerous and scary thing for the Lord Jesus to take on flesh, to be hung on a tree, to be put into a grave, and to suffer hell. Yet that's what he did for you. And that's what he did for me. And he's saying, this is what community looks like. This is what love looks like. This is what church looks like. And as we make these transitions, the next man that comes to be your pastor is not going to have the easy button. He's not going to make everything perfect. He's not going to make everything way better or way worse than it is now. It's on you and it's on us to be a part of a real and authentic community, to love, to restore, and to rescue one another for the glory and the sake of Jesus Christ. It's not on Him, all of it. It's not on the elders, all of it. It's on all of us as the body of Christ to commit to what James is telling us, to commit to what the Lord is commanding us to do and to be. Because this is what Jesus has done for us. So then the next hard question, the next hard question that we have to answer is then do you love your brothers and sisters enough to commit to these kind of relationships? to be willing to bring each other back as they wander, as I wander, as we wander. You see, the language here in these final verses is language of restoration, is one of grace. Bring them back. Bring them back. Bring me back because I wander. And so do you. One of the things that you learn in pastoral ministry is that oftentimes when someone comes into your office for counseling um, with a particular problem or situation, that situation didn't just happen like yesterday. It didn't just pop up a week ago, but it's been going, it's been brewing for some time now. It happens over a course of time. Back to this subtlety, back to these little tiny lies of wandering. 
And now that person or those persons begin to enter into relationships with desperation, with depression, and a self-preservation mode of just trying to protect. Protect, protect, protect. And then they enter into more relationships just trying to see what that relationship has for them in the end. Or maybe we can say with, with some sense of consumerism, what do I get out of this relationship? What, what, is, what is it that's going to bring me benefits? Or what is this relationship or how is this relationship not going to hurt me? And so the relationship becomes self-centered. It becomes how is it that I can be better rather than how is it that I can love and care and minister and love the other person more. Because it's a scary and dangerous thing to enter into relationships. And yet this is what Jesus has done for us. So I ask, do we have a consumer type of attitude or do we have an attitude of restoration and a rescuer's relationship with those people that sit to our left and to our right and front and behind? Are we here with the mentality that I'm part of an ongoing work of redemption and and rescue? Or am I here as a part of an ongoing, I'm in it for me. And they're not doing what I want, so I'm upset or mad. What is our motivation? What is our tendency? What is our heart? What are the lies that we're telling to ourselves, this subtle lie, as we wander away from what true community looks like and what true body of Christ looks like. You see, because all of us are in need of desperate help. All of us need, want, and desire grace and mercy because we all wander. So do we live with a restorer's, rescuer's mentality and intentionality? Is this how we work at relationships? Work at relationships that press beyond just the casual. Press beyond just the, hey, it's raining this morning. We need the rain. Or do we work on relationships that ask good questions? That ask honest questions with honest answers? James is a good pastor. He gets it. And it's good and right that he ends his letter in this way. Because it paints the picture of wandering that we all have. That paints our self-portrait of wandering. So I wonder then, have we received the call of James throughout the book of James and here at the conclusion of James? Have we heard it? Do we take it? Are we living it? Are we making intentional, relational decisions for the restoration of the body and the edification of the people around us, the people that we call brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we giving the same mercy and grace that we expect? Are we giving the same grace and mercy that we have been given through Jesus Christ? Look at verse 20 again with me. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
One commentator puts it this way. Having given us a warning, having mobilized us with a call, James would remind us of how high the stakes are. I think that's true. So what are the stakes? If the stakes are high, what are they? What's at stake here at the end of James? What's at stake here at the end of July 2023 in Arlington, Texas? What's at stake? What are the stakes? I would say this. Nothing less than life and death. Why doesn't sin scare you? Because we tell ourselves that the stakes are something less than life and death. Why do we wander? Because the stakes are less than life and death. We tell ourselves it's not such a big thing. We tell ourselves it won't hurt us if we look at that or want that. We tell ourselves we can handle it. It's not that big of a deal. We tell ourselves it's just this one time. We tell ourselves, I didn't really mean to say those words to you. It didn't, I didn't really mean it. I was, I was just joking. We tell ourselves it's, it's not really me that's the problem. It's them that's the problem so I can say and do what I feel is necessary and right. It's not me. It's them. And all of this minimizes the cross. When we wander away, we're wandering towards something other than life. We're wandering towards something that's dangerous and destructive, and it's called death. And your life, our life, is moving in a direction and moving towards one of two things. Obedience and submission to the Lord, or obedience and submission to death. And so this really is what James is asking us here at the end of this book and really throughout the entirety of the book. What direction are you headed? Stakes are high. Stakes are high in our marriages. Stakes are high at our university. Stakes are high in our families. Stakes are high here at this church. Stakes are life and death. In the Garden of Eden, we saw this play out, didn't we? The evil that the serpent did was that he pointed to death and he said, that's actually life. And then once Adam and Eve were able to look at death, they were able to see death and stare it in the face and call it life, it's not so bad and it's not so hard. And this then is what we do when we begin to wander away. And then once we're able to call death life and life death, it becomes really easy to turn our backs on God. It becomes really easy to turn our backs on our spouses, on our friends, on our church, on our employers, our employees, because we've got it flipped around. Stakes are high. And that's why these verses are so, so important to us. And that's why this call is so important to us. Because the church is at stake. The glory of Jesus is at stake. Life and death is at stake. And that's why grace is so wonderful and powerful. 
Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So if we restore and rescue one another, we're saving someone from walking down the path towards death and steering them back and steering us back to life and to grace and to mercy that we find only at the cross. The stakes are high. James is not arguing then that when we get involved with this mission of, of rescue and, and restoration that somehow we are now someone else's savior. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what James is saying. Jesus Christ is the one that saves. Jesus Christ is the one that ultimately restores and rescues. But when we bring someone back, we're part of the mission. We're part of God's ongoing mission of bringing back souls to himself. And Jesus then is glorious in his patience. He's always glorious in his grace, isn't he? In our world and in our words, we would think and expect God to say, how dare you wander away from me? But a holy God, a righteous God, a merciful God and a gracious God says, you wandered away from me and I'm going to die for you. And I'm going to live for you. I'm going to die to cover your wandering, to cover your sins. And he has died to say, come. Come and know the goodness of grace and mercy. So here's what we need to hear this morning. If you embrace the warning, you accept the call, and you believe in grace, how can we sit here and do nothing? And that's really the book of James, isn't it? If we hear the exhortation, we hear the call in our lives, and we understand grace, and that's really what we believe, and that's who we claim to be, how can we sit and do nothing? How do we wander away? Because if the warning is true, and it is, and the call is for all of us, and it is, and if grace is available, then action is for us. And grace should be unrelenting in the church. So then we would be God's rescuers because we know the danger of the other direction. We know our hearts are prone to wander. Take my life and let it be. Always only to God. And so we want to know one another. We should want to know one another, not just because relationships are fulfilling, but because we see the kingdom and we see what Jesus has done for us. And this is who we actually are. And this is who we need to be. And so the song rings true again, doesn't it? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But then the writer of the hymn says something special. Here's my heart. Take it. Seal it. And how is it taken and how is it sealed? 
through the spilled blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that washes over us with all grace and all mercy. And that causes us then not to wander, but to rescue because he's rescued us first. And so may we be a church. May we be a people defined by that kind of grace, by that kind of community, because we understand we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Here's my heart. Take and seal it for thy courts above. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we come to you now humbled, humbled by the call in our lives, humbled by your grace and mercy to those like us who are prone to wander. And so, Lord, we come to this table at an appropriate time, pleading for you to seal our hearts and our lives with your broken body and with your shed blood. So may this table not be just another Sunday morning activity that we do at church, but may it be something that seals our hearts and our lives to you because you have given us everything that you have. May we taste your grace. May we smell of your goodness that you have given to us through this cup. Thank you that you have allowed us to hear your grace. And so now fill us, nourish us, grow us, and sustain us with your love and your mercy and your presence. Holy Spirit, apply this grace to our hearts and our lives here this day. We pray this in the strong and living name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.